But as we look at the story that God has knit together over the decades here at Grace Point, we're seeing that he is authoring a new chapter, the next chapter here among us. As we've entered in this new chapter, we have answered God's call and his teaching to a call to prayer. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I'm going to give you the cliff note version. Uh, Two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, we heard from God and he was teaching us to live a life of prayer. Not just a lay me down to sleep, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub kind of thing. It's not just memorizing some things we recite to God, but I'm living in communication with God and living that prayer. The following week we saw what it would mean to step up in prayer. Stepping up in prayer by expecting to hear from God and expecting to obey Him. We're committing together, God, we want to hear from you, God. We want to obey what you say. Uh, I want to thank you, church. As we turn this chapter together, you have welcomed us so well. In fact, you've helped Carrie and I do very bad on our diet this last week with the wonderful food pounding. I've taken upon myself to be a good receiver of your hospitality and eat as much of it as possible. Thank you for your warm gifts. You know, as we're getting to know each other, there's some questions of, you know what, well, what will our church look like? And Pastor Brady, where do you think God's taking us? And, and as we pray together, I, I want you to know there are two things that I'm committed to doing right here and now and every leadership group that I can get around, and you're one of them. The first one is I feel called to listen to get close and to listen really well, to hear what God has been doing, to hear what God has done, and I need you to help me with that. The second thing that I'm doing is listening again. Because we need to be good, attentive stewards and students of how God has moved. If we want to know where we're going, we've got to find out where we have been and where we are at. Part of that, and listening to God, I believe he's leading us in this next teaching series entitled Revolutionary love. We're going to be studying the greatest sermon ever preached. It wasn't by me, for sure. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we find the Sermon on the Mount, and scholars agree that there is such rich material here, rich meat here. If you want to be a dedicated follower of Jesus, if you want to find out what it means to really be the church together, we've got to include this text as one of the most important for us to get right. But before we Walk through it over the next number of weeks. We're going to walk through chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. I want to encourage you, if you don't have a place that you're studying and reading, jump in there and be ahead of the game as we move into that. But there is something about this message that Jesus gives. It is revolutionary. His love comes out in there, but it changes things. And we need to have kind of a warm-up to get ready to put into context what he's going to say to us. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a revolution. Have you? When you think of a revolution, I think of being in school and I'd hear about revolutions and and wars and I'd think through history of a different revolution and a revolt and all those kind of things. As I thought a a little while back about have I ever been a part of a revolution, I'm ashamed to say the first thing that popped in my mind is really silly. Can I tell you? Good answer because I'm going to tell you anyway. Thanks, Carrie. I was, excuse me, in eighth grade in Oskaloosa, Iowa, junior high school. And there was a great injustice that took place. We were in the lunchroom, and a unilateral decision was made by the lunchroom lady that she was going to turn off the milkshake machine for the rest of the year. It made no sense to us. It was a great joy in my life to come to that 
milkshake station and get my 25 cent milkshake, but it's been turned off. It's over. It's done. I had no choice but to lead a revolt. I now found myself one who was going to lead a revolution. It was going to change and we were going to make it happen. So I gathered the few that I could influence and we sat there at lunchroom table number eight. We got our forks in hand and with the wonderful plan, we just pounded our fists in unison and said, we want milkshakes. I know I told you it was dumb, but that's what I did. And we continued to do that all throughout the lunch period and we did that the first day and then the second day we did the same thing and there wasn't much effect happening. And the third day, we were interrupted by a voice over the loudspeaker that said, all the crazy guys at lunchroom table eight, please come to my office. It was the principal. At that point, I noticed the enlistment in my revolution quickly dispersed. (laughs) And to be honest, I left the table too and didn't want to claim starting that. You know, the things that we feel like are so important that is a revolution, it will change everything. It's just got to take everything we are what do we really give ourselves to? I mean, there's important things in the world that are a worthy cause of a revolution. But for us to understand this revolutionary love in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, let's look at the definition of what a revolution is. If you'd like to take notes, you may want to jot this down. A sudden or radical or complete change. A fundamental change in the way of thinking about something or the way you visualize something. It's a sudden, it's a radical change. It's not just some kind of little shift. It's leading a a revolt, a radical change. A revolutionary. Relating to or constituting a revolution. Bringing about a major fundamental change. Throughout history, we can see leaders who led a social revolution, and there's a lot of good that comes out of that. We can see people who led a political revolution, and there's some good that come out of, came out of that. But there is a revolution, a spiritual revolution, that has left the world changed forever. It's a revolutionary love. It's a love that the world doesn't understand. It's a revolution that they didn't like the way it happened. As you look at that graphic, though I'm good at making typos, this one was intentional. In revolutionary, you see love backwards. This was an inside-out, upside-down, different kind of love that they did not understand. Jesus' revolution is still countercultural today. When we think of the love of God, there's three things I want you to catch before we get going. You ready? I'm going to speed up my preacher and you speed up your listener. They're both located right here. Turn the knob. Speed up your listener. I'm going to speed up my preacher. We've got the love of God. It's sometimes we think about the love of God coming down to us, like this arrow coming down. It's a revolutionary love, a love that cannot be counterfeited, a love that cannot be duplicated. It has to be authentically from Him. It's God's love that downloads into us. It changes us. But something happens when we see the love of God, His love for us, when the arrow goes back up. His love for us changes us so much that we have a love for Him. It's our love for Him. The love of God. It's not just that I like God or I want to be tight with God or I want to get in good with Him so I don't have to burn in hell. But it's God's love, that revolutionary love that transforms me, causes me to love Him back in a way that I can't do on my own. Some of us have experienced that. Many of us have. But unfortunately, I think sometimes in the church we stop right there and we see this personal relationship is a up and a down thing and it's over. But the love of God is also His love through us. God is calling us as His people 
to have this revolutionary love grip our hearts and our lives so much that it not only changes us, it changes the way we love him, it changes the way we relate to every single person around us. The Sermon on the Mount is going to teach us how to live that way. It's going to talk to us about what it looks like to have his love ooze out of every pore of our being. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. We'll be at verse 23 in just a moment. I want to talk to you today about an event that comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. It's found in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is within now a few days of the crucifixion, and no doubt he knows what's coming. The whole city had been praising him, and now he's told that there are Gentiles and Jews in that city that want to see him. I don't know, but I I think that he would be mindful of what we find in John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he knew this giving that God would do of his love would be his death on the cross. When it came time, he knew he wasn't to just come for the believer. He wasn't to come just for the Jew, just for the religious, just for the good. He was to come for the whole world. He knew that the only way that the world would be reached was through his death. Now notice what it says in verse 23 of chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is an interesting expression. The hour has come for the Son of Man, the Messiah, to be glorified. I don't know if they would have agreed that this is what they expected. I don't think Nicodemus would have said, yeah, crucifixion, the Son of God is going to be glorified. Uh Uh-uh. Nicodemus would say, hey, the Messiah being glorified, we expect a crown, we expect a robe, we expect a throne, we expect a conquering of of some kind of area or people group. But Jesus says a few days from now, the Son of Man will be glorified. Now look what he says in verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life, that is, the one who wants to protect his life, the one who hangs on to it, who, who, who keeps a grip on everything around him, this man will lose it. But the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This doesn't mean that we should hate our existence in, in living here on earth, but it means that we should hate the thought of trying to hang on to ourself, hang on to our life for the sake of hanging on to it. We need to be able to let it go and be okay to let our life go for something greater. Now, verse 26, don't miss this. It's good. You can amen, but I don't want you to miss it. Okay, so amen quick. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. That's good, Ash. I like it. But sometimes we get excited about following Jesus. We need to figure out where he's going. Where was Jesus going? He says, those who serve me will follow me. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to lay everything down. He says, if you serve me, you must follow me and give everything else up. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. I'm thankful for the next couple verses. It helps us see the, the fully God, fully human aspect of Jesus. Verse 27, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wasn't excited just to to suffer for the sake of suffering. He wasn't a glutton for punishment. He didn't just love to be hurt, but he knew there was something greater at hand. He was willing to lay it all down for something greater. I don't know if there's a more profound principle in all of the New Testament than what we find right here in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, loses its identity in the new creation, it will die and abide alone. But if it loses its life, then it will gain and it will produce much fruit, as one paraphrase says. Now, I think he was getting at the thing that was most difficult for the Jews to grasp, definitely most difficult for the church today to grasp. It's this understanding, this principle that no life can be fruitful that is self-centered. Church, as we are looking at what God is calling us to be as a community of believers, we not only have to be a people who live a life of prayer, not only a people who are committed to obey what God says to us, but we have to get this right in our own individual lives and our life as a community that no life, no church, no ministry can be fruitful that is self-centered. Friends, we got to get this right from the beginning. This is definitely not Brady's church. You say, I know, I was getting ready to tell you that. (laughs) Friends, it's not your church. This is Jesus' church. He is the head, and we're going to listen to him and what he's telling us to do. And one thing he's making perfectly clear to all of us, that no life, no ministry, no church can be fruitful that is centered on itself. As we begin to move into the Sermon on the Mount and we begin to see how God is calling us to live, we've got to understand it through these eyes. This is revolutionary. It changes everything. It's a game changer. It is inside out, upside down, backwards from what the world would tell us and how to live our life. Now, when Jesus came doing that and saying that and believing that, he lived that, it blew the minds of the religious leaders. It's interesting to me that Israel rejected Christ for the very reason that they should have embraced him. The church today rejects Jesus in our own walls for the very reason that we should embrace him. You say, well, what are you talking about? Let's look at four pictures of Christ's revolutionary love we find in the book of John. The first picture, this first example that we see of Jesus and his revolutionary love in the book of John is right there at the top, John 1, 10 and 11. We hear things about Jesus being the Word, and the Word was with God at the beginning, and the Word was God, and this is Jesus. And we see some language here talking to us in these verses about what happened. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Another translation says, his own recognized him not. They didn't recognize him. They didn't see Jesus. They did not receive him. His own creation rejected him. This first picture we see of Christ and his revolutionary love that's so backwards, so counterintuitive, is a God who can be rejected. Uh, Now, I link that with the verse we find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. 
This is a picture of Jesus who can be rejected, who's standing at our heart's door and knocks. Now, I love this picture we see up on the screen. It's one of my favorite pictures that we have of somebody's interpretation of what Jesus would be like. Holman Hunt's painting, The Light of the World. Here you see in this picture that he has royal robes on. He has priestly robes on. He is the king. He is the high priest. And he has a crown on his head. And he has a lantern of light that he's holding that lights up his feet and his path. And we see on the door that he is knocking. There is no handle. There is no knob. We see the grass and the weeds have grown up. It looks like this door has not been opened up in a long time. This man's interpretation of a picture of Jesus is very much what we see in the Gospel of John. It's a God who comes knocking at our door, who's willing to be rejected. This doesn't make sense. There is no king, there is no president in the world today who comes knocking. You know, my guess is that Barack Obama has not knocked on a door in close to four years. I mean, maybe it's his wife's door, the only person who could say no to him. And maybe the people who would muster up some courage to say no to Barack Obama, there are people, teams of people that go ahead of a president, that go ahead of a king, that steer them in another direction because the embarrassment of being rejected or not let in or being shut out for a king or a president, it just doesn't happen. Think of the press conference from whoever your favorite president may be. If Ronald Reagan, one of my favorite, would walk into a press conference, he didn't knock at the door and say, could I, could I come in? They were ready. They were waiting. He showed up. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that is our earthly understanding of a president of a king. And Jesus says, I'm a different king. I'm a king who's willing to be rejected. You know, it makes sense to me why kings and presidents don't want to be rejected. We don't like that either. If we're honest, we play all kinds of games to skirt around being rejected. You do it with me. We enter into a discussion or conversation with somebody, you kind of float out your idea a little bit at a time to see if that door of receptivity opens up a little bit. And if they're receptive to your thought or your idea, you tell them a little bit more. If they not, they shut that door, you kind of back up to save a little bit of face. We spend a lot of energy and a lot of time to not be rejected. There are some who'd rather have physical pain and physical suffering than be rejected by the ones they love. I'm not making light of that. I'm not saying it's easy, but this revolutionary love is very different. A second picture that we see took place a day before or so this, maybe even the same day of this event. Jesus' ministry was well known for three and a half years. He did miracles. He healed people. He cleansed the leper. He turned the water into wine, and the crowd was chanting his name now, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king of Israel. And as he saw this, he surveyed and he made plans of how he should enter into the city. So he made arrangements. And he secured an animal and he got it situated and he rode in on a donkey. The second picture we see is a God not only who chose to to be able to be rejected, but he chose to ride a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9, this is fulfilling a prophecy. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. But I hadn't seen this. A couple years ago, this just 
jumped out at me in verse 10. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. Could it be that Jesus was not just humbling himself riding on a donkey, but he was having a stark contrast between a donkey, which symbolizes service, servanthood and humility and war and an instrument of power and pomp and circumstance. Well, we kind of get that from the context of a donkey, but I think this is very, very deliberate. This is a picture that Jesus is revealing about himself. We see not only this God who allows himself to be rejected, who humbles himself, who comes to serve. This third picture God has found later that week. It's on a Thursday. In Jesus Christ, gathering with his disciples. I can just hear him thinking, Israel missed it. Jerusalem doesn't understand me. Let's see if you guys get it. So Jesus gets out a basin of water and he begins to wash their feet. We see a picture of a God who got on his knees and washed feet. We see Peter who says, no way, master. You can't wash my feet. I mean, maybe, maybe I could wash your feet, but you can't wash my feet. I have sympathy for him. You know, I can just see him saying, Jesus, get up, and thinking he was all right. You can't wash my feet. Who are you to wash my feet? You are the Son of God. I don't even know if I'm worthy to wash your feet. And Jesus quickly looks at him and says, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Very serious. He cuts to the chase. He says, this is a revolutionary love. It's different than anything you've ever imagined. If you're going to follow me, you need to know what I'm about. And I am showing you. Follow my example. We are here to possibly be rejected. We are here to humble ourselves and to serve. We are here to get on our knees and wash the feet of people around us. You know, it's one thing for me to wash the feet of somebody who I... I love and I have respect for. I could wash Ash's feet. He may not like that. I wouldn't mind that. But Jesus is calling us to wash the feet of some people that we may not love yet. We may not have some things in common with yet. We may not see them at our same level yet. He says, this is the kind of God that I am. This fourth and final picture we see of Jesus comes on Friday. It's a God who gave his life on a cross. You know the story well. I don't have to read it to you. It's outside the city on a hill. This king who they expected to have a crown. Well, he has a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. This king who they expected to have Royal robes. He had a robe, but it was filthy. It was tattered. It was torn. They expected him to have a a throne, and instead he had a cross, and he was nailed to it. It's a picture of a God whose revolutionary love is so counterintuitive to anything else around them, he died on a cross for them. You say, well, Pastor Brady, what does that have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? What does that have to do with where God has taken us as a church? I'm trying to help you out. What are you talking about? You see, it's this picture of Jesus that is completely different to anything else. 
and I'm, I'm ashamed to say that sometimes even in the church, it's so different than the way we even do church. It's so different than the way that we see God. It's so different than the way we want to relate to God. It is so revolutionary that we need to have an experience with the revolutionary love of God again before we can begin to live the way he's called us to live. It's worthy of news. It's worthy to be shouted out. It's worthy to be sung in praise. But sometimes we become so comfortable and so complacent and so compromising with this that we don't even know if it's news anymore, let alone good news. I like the way one woman put it. It's not much news if a dog bites a man. Happens all the time. Dog bites a man. But it may warrant a few inches in the newspaper if into the vet clinic came a dog who had a man bite. If a man would bite a dog. Turning the tables on that, that just seems strange. That may be worthy of listening to. It's not unusual for a man to die for his God. We see all the time that there will be a Muslim who will give his life for his God that a Christian may die. That's happened for centuries. We love to point the finger there, but there's all around us people who give their life every single day for their God of their career, the God of their fulfillment, the God of their own will, and they lay down everything for the sake of their God. That's not newsworthy. That's commonplace. But there's something revolutionary. There's something that's a game changer. A love that is so worthy of news. What would happen if there was a God who would die for his creation? I mean, if that would ever happen, that would be worthy of some news. That would be something out of the ordinary. There's no religion in the world that can claim that. Friend, as you know, that has happened. God in Jesus Christ gave his very life for you and I. And I'm not trying to say that you should have never heard this before or this should be some brand new Eureka, but I'm wondering why we get over it so quickly. I'm wondering why we're so complacent with it. I'm wondering why we don't want to tell people about it. I'm wondering why we think this is just what happens all the time. The God who created you, who lowered himself in the form of a human in Jesus Christ, comes down and gives himself to you. He says, I am willing to be rejected. I will stand at your heart's door and wait till you let me in. So many of us know a lot about God. He's been standing there so long that things have grown up around us and we've never opened him in, opened up and let him into our life. We've let him in, but we say, Jesus, I want to receive you, but I'm not going to love you with some kind of revolutionary love. I'm not a holy weirdo. I'm just going to kind of take you in. But God says, no, if you want to be about my business, if you want to follow me, you've got to go where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. I'm giving myself up. And, and you know what, church? This is what it looks like for us to be the church. We see here that God may be calling us to answer the question, what have you done with God's revolutionary love? I want you to think about that right now. One, does it even seem revolutionary to you anymore? Or like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to say. It's Sunday. Is it anything that's a game changer or is it just what you kind of expect? Has it had any change in your life? And 
And maybe you think of those arrows, and we'll come back to that graphic over the next couple of weeks as we learn from Jesus on how to live a life of this revolutionary love. Sometimes we just soak up this love that he has for us, that it never changes anything in us, and, and we look at people who erupt in praise to God and go, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with them is they've been wrecked by the love of Jesus, and they've got to lift it up to him. Now, I want to be real clear about something, that I'm not making a case for you to be someone that you're not. Don't be like me. We only need one Brady, and maybe that's questionable at that. You be who God has created you. Now, I've seen some of you at the tin cap game. Here's what I'm after. If you get excited at the tin cap, some of you, I saw you got excited like this. Something good happened, and you went, cool. That was it. I watched. I saw you. I know who you are. And that's good. But you know what? If that's how you get excited for the tin caps, then, then here's what I'm asking you to do. When you see God's revolutionary love, you just... The way we get excited for Jesus should be above the way we get excited for anything else. Or something is wrong. We've not experienced Him lately. Church, we're so on time. If you're wondering, it's perfectly on time. I'm so excited that we're on time. I know none of you are worried about that, but we're on time. As we press in and we listen to God together, as we commit to obey what He says to us, as we say, God, as you author the next chapter of the life of the ministry of Grace Point Church of the Nazarene, what is it going to look like? Friend, I can tell you it's not going to look like Brady. It, it hopefully it's not going to look like just you and me, but it's going to look like what God has for us. And He's going to call us to some things sometimes that may shake us a little bit. I believe he's going to call us to go knocking on some doors that we go, ah, what if they reject me? Jesus says, I know. Well, what if they, worse, they open up the door and then they slam it shut? I know. What if I'm there day after day after day in that relationship, loving on them and loving on them, being pushed aside, pushed aside? He says, I know. You're getting it. I would much rather them come to me and come, come see us. Jesus said, I don't care how long you've been a part of Grace Point Church of the Nazarene. I don't care how much of a foundation you've been to my work here. I want you to remember, friend, this is Jesus talking. He says, I gave a rip about you before you ever gave a rip about me. My grace has gone before, and I'm calling you to do the same. There is somebody around you who's dying to experience my revolutionary love, but you've become so complacent with it, it's time for it to ooze out of your every pore and being. And it's more than just a decision today. It's more than just turning over a leaf. It's living out the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to walk through that, but we can't even get to it because we need fresh eyes to see that this is so opposite of the world around us. Church, God's going to call us to intentionally not ride the white horse of a stallion. There's going to be some things that we could say, look at us, Fort Wayne. Look at us. 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 We are good. We are good. And you know what? Some of that's okay. We can be proud about seeing Jesus in one another. We can lift up the work that God has done in one another. But what if we were known more for how we serve, more for how we humble ourselves than how we exalt ourselves in pomp and circumstance? What if we'd be known for following the pattern of the revolutionary love of Jesus? Well, what if 
What if we'd say, I, I want to I experiment with washing feet of people that I don't know if I'd even have dinner with. If you don't like it, don't, don't get mad at me. Get mad at Jesus. This is his sermon. It's not mine. I know. I've, I've had the same feeling. I've had the same thought. I said, Jesus, are you sure? He says, follow me. And that means follow where I'm going, not follow what you like. Follow where I have for you, not follow where you've been. Follow where I'm taking you. Finally, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, church, if you're going to follow me, brother, sister, Jesus says, you have to give your very life. It's going to cost us something. That's not popular to say right now. I'd love to tell you that the new chapter for Grace Point Church of the Nazarene is easy. It's just sit back. It's just coast. It's you've given everything you need to give, and let's just watch it all happen. Friend, I'm confident of one thing. It's not going to be my plan. It's not going to be your plan, and I'm confident it's going to cost us something to follow his plan. That's good preaching. I say that in jest. I've had a number of you say, Pastor Brady, I've really enjoyed your sermon, and that's encouraging to me, and I appreciate that, and I think I know what you mean. But I had a mentor of mine share with me not too many years ago that's impacted me. It's changed me forever. He said, Brady, my wife and I, when we were young in ministry, after I would speak somewhere, she'd ask me a question. She'd say, how'd you do? And I'd tell her how I did, and we'd kind of either rejoice or lament over how I did. But as God began to develop me, my mentor said, and he said, the question shifted, and, and it wasn't me, my wife shifted, and she said, how did, how did they do? How did they receive it? They saw something new in this paradigm of the preached word of God. And then he could share about how the people received it and how they liked it. And then as God continued to mature them, he said, Brady, my wife asked me a question, and this is where we're at. We're going to stay. I don't care how you did. I don't care how they received it. Did he show up? Friend, I appreciate your encouragement. I'm human. I, I hope you like some of the things that I say. But you know what? Jesus preached in sermons. They wouldn't sell any CD sets. And I'm more committed to preaching what he gives than what would sell for popularity. And we're going to run for that together. And you know what? I, I, I not only hope that you, you kind of like some things, and I hope that you receive it well, but church, we're going to be a church that is focused on if he shows up, Because when he shows up, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you think or like. Because we've already committed we're going to hear from him. We've already committed that we're going to do what he says. We've already committed that God, his revolutionary love, is going to look different than what the world around us thinks. I'm not done, but I'm through. I'm going to ask Pastor Edgar to come up. And as he does, I don't know where your heart is today in all this. I know I, I gave you a sermon to get to the sermon. I'm sorry we didn't quite get to the sermon today. That's the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be there in the next couple weeks. We'll be there next week and for the next few weeks. But I, I, I can't help but think this is similar to what the hymn writer had in mind when he said these words. We see, sing things like this, but I wonder if it really is true anymore in our life and And I believe God's calling us back to a response similar to this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? 
Do you have any interest in the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you? Or are you just kind of over that? Died he for me who caused his pain? Do you recognize what it is that we have done that has caused him pain? For me, who him to death pursued, he chased you all the way to the end of himself, conquered sin, death, and the grave to reach you. This is the amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Oh, God, would you wake us up this morning, your church? that would be captivated by your revolutionary love that's inside out and backwards from what the world around us would call and think of. God, I pray that you'll help us to see the way to do church is not our preference. It's not just what you've done in the past. It's just not what others around us are doing. But God, the one who has made himself rejectable, the one who has humbled himself to serve, the one who has come to wash feet, the one who has given his life, I pray, God, that we will see that you are calling us to follow you in that total surrender. Church, I want to invite you to stand with me. And either out of a heart of celebration or a heart of desperateness for God or maybe out of a heart that's seeking right now, I want you to lift this song with all the gusto and musto and every gusto you have inside of you. I don't care if you can sing. Pastor Edgar is not doing auditions right now. You just sing it at the top of your lungs. If you've never heard this song before, you just read it at the top of your lungs and allow this to be your prayer.